to MI Cynic. Today, I have the pleasure in inviting one of the leading experts, I would say, today on Afghanistan and uh, somebody who I admire and appreciate very greatly, none other than Mr. Irfan Yar. I actually uh, got wind of Irfan Yar by coincidence when I was watching uh, a webinar last month on the Global Counterterrorism Institute, and uh, and I was watching some of his previous interviews on on Afghanistan that immediately captured my attention. And so I'm very very happy to to have you on board with the show uh, today, and of course to be speaking about a subject that's very near and dear to your heart in more ways than one, uh, which is of course Afghanistan. So without further ado, maybe we could start just with a very light. Uh, brief overview. I know you, you've got a lot to speak about, uh, about where you started academically and where you are now. Well, first, thank you so much, Thomas, for having me here and for your kind and excellent introduction. Uh, so in terms of my academic background, uh, I start developing, you know, uh, interest in, in, in security studies because, uh, because I was more influenced by what was going on back in my country, Afghanistan. I lived there, I lived in Pakistan. So the situation on the ground, like, was very, you know, uh, conflicted, conflict driven and all those things. So it made me curious to, to pursue something in security. And then I did my BA honors in political science in India and subsequently uh, international relation and area studies where I specifically focused on South Asia uh, to be more specific on Pakistan and Afghanistan. And I was also working, you know, uh, in, in the same stream uh, in security. And then I moved to Canada also, you know, did my second master's in international affairs with a focus on, again, uh, on security and uh, conflict. And uh, hopefully to, to pursue my PhD in the same stream. Is this a, a big, I mean, I know that here in the West, in my studies and, and in my work, it's still quite new in, in many ways. I think 10, 15 years ago, you wouldn't really, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find a OSINT private intelligence job or even academically speaking, it was very hush-hush for uh, for a long time. And um, is this something that is, is gaining a lot of traction, the, the study of intelligence, employment in intelligence? I would say yes, and and one of the reasons that uh, uh, that uh, this uh, study is attracting more attention and and scope is uh, the the role of think tank and India's involvement in countries like uh, like Afghanistan and in some countries you know there are done by conflict in in Africa, and the think tank community there is is much active you know and and promoting India's interest to be uh, to be engaging in those conflict driven areas and. Partially, uh, the intelligence is also important to India because of its own volatile situation, specifically talking about Kashmir, where, you know, intelligence really matter. And of course, it, it's neighboring state Pakistan. So they are, you know, uh, they would never uh, let intelligence, you know, shrink up because it is something uh, which, which is really... Right. Critical to the it, would you say almost that India doesn't have the luxury of uh, treating intelligence as a as a far away thing, or uh, you know, it really is a matter of uh, right next door, and uh, India is very much in a in a contested. I mean, not just obviously the Middle East immediately to the uh, the west of the country, but of course you have China, Southeast Asia. I mean, really a. It's almost sitting on a hot spot of intelligence activity. Yeah. So for India, you know, intelligence is not an option. This is, this is 
uh, a requirement and a critical a critical thing for its own survival specifically as you mentioned you know it has china with which it has a very volatile relation pakistan obviously and even the events uh, in, in afghanistan can also have you know consequences on india's national security now you were quite young i believe when you made the decision to study afghanistan um what what made you decide to take such a deep dive into the country more or less completely uh, what what made you decide to afghanistan of all places well this is this is very interesting you know story and a journey so when we were in pakistan in a refugee camp I'm not sure if you heard about the Fata region, which is considered to one of the most, you know, conflict and dangerous zone. It's a border between Pakistan and Afghanistan where all those Mujahideen and Jihadists, you know, have their safe heaven. And I was living, you know, in that area. And, uh, you know, to, to be honest with you, even in my school, uh, there were people and who would, you know, like uh, ask students, you know, to, to, join the training camps and go to Afghanistan for jihad. And for two times, uh, I mean, I was very young that time, like that. And my father, thanks to him, he would tell us, don't listen to these people, you know, these radical people. I would sometimes argue with them that why jihad, you know, should be raised in Afghanistan. There are Muslims, even the people, I mean, why why jihad should come at all you know so they would tell me that you are deviated from the path of islam and then they would discourage me you know to to stick to that decision so that endpoints you know but again if you see the surrounding there it's a very backward area you know even the pakistanis uh, uh they were also state sponsored you know kind of radical uh the for example in my school, uh, if you could see the, the curriculum, there was one topic, Islamic studies, in which they would brought a very controversial chapter from Quran, which is called Surat al-Ahzab and Surat al-Anfal. And they specifically talk about, you know, uh, the fight and wars between Muslim and non-Muslim. And for students who are in, you know, third and fourth grade and studying that chapter would leave a very head Red, you know, an image full of head, uh, speci- specifically of the Western people. And we would taught that in the school. So, and those were certain things, you know, which made me curious why there is war, why there is jihad. And this is how I, you know, start taking interest in politics. Yeah, uh, for what seems to me for a very personal experience with uh, very complicated topics and with ramifications that uh, go beyond the personal and and quite possibly to society at large. So, well, thank you very much for sharing that. Um, I think that's a great segue into Afghanistan today. And one of the principal reasons why I thought it would be great to have you on the show now is of course, uh, what's happening right now in the news uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, So for those in my audience who may not be completely up to date with what's going on, I have a, a short little incident here which I thought was was very interesting and I was looking through the notes that on the 7th of March of this year the US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken uh, had a letter addressed to President Ghani of Afghanistan and it was leaked. Uh, It presents four suggestions for the Afghan peace process uh, and this was the start of the so-called Biden leak which made its rounds through Twitter and uh, uh, which opens up, of course, the door to a series of events leading to the decision to withdraw U.S. troops in uh, in, Af- in Afghanistan. 
then henceforth on the 12th, there was another leaked documents from the State Department, uh, more or less the same thing here with the leaks that are happening place. Um, I find this very interesting, uh, these high profile leaks. And uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, it, it seems almost very timely that there was these leaks. And then uh, sometime afterwards, there was a, a high profile decision made by the Biden government. Is there a, a link there? I mean, is it quite convenient, would you say, for these leaks to prep an international audience for what was to come as a withdrawal after 20 years on the ground? I think, first of all, if we talk about the leak, why it happened, uh, such high-profile documents, you know, which could decide potentially the fate of Afghan people, you know, and the country as a whole, uh, you know, later or soon, these documents had to come to the public domain. Uh, specifically, you know, it it, uh, it leaked in Afghanistan, not in the U.S., so it also represents partially uh, the, 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 you know, the... Uh, capability of the, uh, I would say, you know, the weakness of the Afghan intelligence that they were not able to keep that in secret. It also says that uh, the Afghan press has, uh, the press media has considerable amount of, you know, uh, free, freedom of speech because uh, without, you know, taking care of the government secret, you know, they expose us to the public. So I think it should be something appreciated uh, of the Afghan media. And, and, and third, uh, as I mentioned, that both you know, countries are, are, are democratic, Afghanistan and, and, and uh, the U.S. Uh, so in uh, the pub and the people constitution, uh, constitutionally have the right to know. And again, uh, such documents which can directly influence people's lives, I think they should come to public domain. But I think uh, as analysts, we should be more concerned about what are the consequences and what are, you know, uh, in those documents. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, that uh, this is this is something, you know, which, uh, which, which, which is directly related to the people of Afghanistan, because in this document, the uh, Americans uh, says that uh, the uh, Ashraf Ghani should cooperate with uh, with the Taliban so that the the slow and quickly Afghan peace process can you know speed up and they can reach a, a potential uh, mutual agreement. Uh, so I think this is very critical uh, time uh, to be discussed that topic. Yes, and uh, well, thank you for sharing that. I uh, I can't agree with you more. You know, this is something that for me is is also a very interesting situation that I think it certainly took me by surprise. A war that has lasted 20 years following the attacks on September the 11th, it cost 2,300 American lives and what I would assume was many more Afghan lives, although I don't have the number with me, let alone the damage that's been caused uh, through families and households in Afghanistan and beyond. Uh, it has been uh, the start of the global war on terror, which is still ongoing. And I think after 20 years of this, this, this document, whether the, the Taliban and the Afghan government reaching uh, what was a, a mutual pact, right? This, this was agreed nominally, although I'd like to ask you about that a bit later. Is it a positive step for peace in the region after 20 years? Yeah, the U.S., you know, uh, it's, it's been 20 years the U.S. been fighting the Taliban and, and its allies, you know, U.S. has spent, you know, trillions of dollars. I would say I read one of the documents that mentioned that the U.S. spent $3 trillion and 
you know, thousands of uh, U.S. and Afghan lives were lost. So despite all these, you know, 20 years war, trillions of dollars and huge, massive, you know, human casualties, the United States could not defeat the Taliban, neither it achieved at school in Afghanistan. And the only thing that they say is that killed Osama bin Laden. So like, like really, like one person could work, you know, this much uh, cost from the U.S. and the Afghan Afghan government. It's 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 like not convincing. So the U.S., you know, in some ways has admitted its its defeat. And uh, just a few weeks ago, Biden also says that uh, uh, no amount of the U.S. soldier could bring peace and stability to Afghanistan. And not and it was also not their objective, you know, to go there and stabilize Afghanistan. So it suggests that U.S. never intended, you know, to go there and, you know, bring stability to the country. What they wanted is to eradicate threat, which would pose, you know, a threat to the U.S. national security. So obviously, and now that the U.S. has decided, you know, to leave Afghanistan, I would say irresponsibly, it is, it is like a good decision, at least now, because we cannot say there was a best option, but we, we should always talk relatively. So relatively, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. troops and other international troops leaving Afghanistan was relatively a, a good decision because if they would stay further, the Taliban, you know, uh, straight, are very straight in their, in their decision and their said, they said, we will wage war, we will even intensify war, uh, be it Afghan government or on the US. And of course, there would be more casualties, more, uh, more you know, threat uh, to, the, to the neighboring countries and of course, Afghan government itself. So I think uh, we shall still hope for the best. And this was, you know, the best possible decision that the Biden administration took. Yes, I, I think it's uh, one of the most interesting things uh, for an analyst, for a political analyst, is the vast difference uh, in the response that we have seen uh, at the at the initial start of the war uh, versus what we see now. And of course, we're talking about two different presidents from two different political parties and 20 years in between, the world has changed. But even so, it's remarkably interesting how unideological the Biden administration has been in approaching Afghanistan. Um, we are not talking about a commitment at all costs. We are not talking about democracy at all costs and installing regimes. We're almost seeing what is a, a flat out admission that, you know what, we couldn't install our version of, of government and democracy in, in Afghanistan. We couldn't even defeat the enemy that we declared war on after 9-11. And, uh, and in fact, we, we are going to even want the Taliban uh, to be, you know, part of, provisionally a part of, of Afghanistan's future, whether that be in the shape of, uh, you know, official governance or not. And I think it's, it's quite startling to see that difference. Why do you think that is? Why, why are we seeing such an incredibly different posture from the U.S. government 20 years into this war? Uh, and why are we not seeing more of that initial um, wave of enthusiasm following the Bush administration's declaration? Well, again, if we see to the situation on the ground, it's about the reality on the ground, you know, who has upper hand. And based on that decision, 
I think uh, from the beginning, you know, like in, when the United States invaded Afghanistan, so they were within like few weeks, they wiped out the Taliban regime and, you know, killed around 12,000 Taliban member. And for the two years, situation was pretty normal. Nobody could imagine, you know, that the Taliban will reemerge as an insurgency. But soon after, like five, five, six years in 2005, the Taliban re-emerged a very you know, stark and resilient force and they mount heavy casualty in American forces. And and and, and that was, you know, uh, a, a big realization for, for the US, especially when Obama came to power and he started talking to uh, the Taliban. And uh, it was uh, during his time when the Qatar office of the Taliban was established with cooperation from Hamid Karzai, the former president of Afghanistan, because the US admitted that you know they were uh, they were taking heavy casualties of their forces and and the and the war was going nowhere. Mm. So from there, they decided that they should leave Afghanistan, but they were always looking for a good opportunity when it should be the right time. So mm. they waited and hoped for a better you know situation to leave Afghanistan, but it never happened until now. And even uh, Biden also said that uh, uh, the situation is not going to improve and we cannot wait uh, for the hope that Afghanistan will get better or, you know, uh, for an ideal situation so that they can withdraw their troops. So uh, from the beginning, the Taliban were, were very strong because they knew what was, you know, uh, how to mobilize specifically the Afghan people. One of, one of the mistakes that U.S. made was uh, when they invaded Afghanistan, they did not take the Afghan people uh, as their strategic audience. So what, what the U.S. did was, you know, they just took uh, in confidence a very small group, which we call, you know, the Northern Islands, who were at one point the, the sworn enemies of the Taliban. And that was a very limited and small group. And the uh, American usually ignore the Afghan people. What did the Taliban did? They pushed a, a counter, you know, insurgency operation with taking the Afghan people, you know, in their in their confidence. So they established very close relation with the Afghan people, especially in the in the rural Afghanistan. And and, and they convinced them that the US has come here to destroy their, your religion, your culture, uh, your your property. And it was the cooperation from the people on the ground that made and, and granted the Taliban uh, a very, you know, significant strength. And is, and that, is that so? Is that why? Do you think that failure by the U.S. command to uh, secure the popular support for the cause uh, has meant that instead? large chunks, a significant portion of the Afghanistan uh, population, uh, went on to support the Taliban, which in turn meant that the Taliban could rebuild stronger, more resilient, and today undefeated. Well, yeah, like the US, of course, you know, no matter how knowledge they gain in Afghanistan's society, you know, they would always be not sufficient, you know, in order to deal the situation on the ground here. And the Taliban, you know, utilize their Pashtun knowledge, you know, uh, they, they capitalize on their knowledge because they knew what would, you know, uh, what would uh, anger the, the local Afghan. And U.S. made huge mistakes uh, in rural Afghanistan. They would they would raid the Afghan people home. Uh, they would violate the Parda system, which we call it, you know, the, uh, the, the privacy of Afghan women. 
here in the West, like we don't care if you're a male and you are searching a woman's body in terms of security, it's mm-hmm. very normal. But back there, it is considered to be a huge, you know, dishonor for the family. Mm-hmm. And in order to regain their honor in that society, they must, you know, take revenge and, uh, you know, are die while, try, while, while, while trying, you know, revenge. These are very, you know, like, the facts that usually are ignored by the practitioner and, and, and policymaker and thanks to academia where, you know, they would, you know, dig deep into this, you know, kind of uh, uh, facts which rarely matter on the ground. So those kind of things, you know, those mistakes were, were exploited by the Taliban is a huge sources of propaganda. They would take the picture of, you know, uh, of, of such situation where a U.S. soldier would, you know, search women body and and poster on the local areas. For example, let me narrate um, one poster. The Taliban uh, says that, oh, Afghan people, do you have honor? The American soldier are, you know, violating the privacy of Afghan women and right. you are still silent. So right. come and join us. And those propaganda, you know, those Afghan people are very, I would say, naive, especially in, in, in rural areas. So they would always see what's happening on the ground. You know, they don't understand the Western culture and all those things. So what is more appealing for them, they would always go, you know, uh, and, and join that party. And obviously that was the Taliban who were more and, and uh, more culturally close, more linguistically close, and they mm-hmm. would defend their culture. I believe that there was a similar situation in Vietnam. And I mean, the parallels are, are almost so difficult to ignore. The story writes itself uh, in, in as far as the failure to, to listen and to garner the authentic support of the population in question. I think immediately one of the questions that that rises is uh, whether the United States can win uh, a long protected guerrilla style war um, and whether we're not just witnessing in Iraq and in Afghanistan a repeat of, of the same era from a tactical perspective. Um, and I think that's a, that's a very interesting question. Do you think there was uh, another way forward? Do you think uh, the United States could have achieved a different result in Afghanistan? And, and how would that be? How would that have been done? And what would Afghanistan look today if that were the case? Well, this is a very complex answer. But again, seeing you know, seeing uh, the whole picture and analyzing the current situation, one might say that uh, that the American are coming to the same point where they start the war. For example, they came here to kill Osama bin Laden, and now they are going without achieving their aim. So, admittedly, it was a defeat. And now, uh, uh, and the best possible scenario would be, for example, if uh, the, 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 the notorious, you know, uh, attack on World Trade Center happened on 9-11, even the Taliban says that we said, okay, we want to negotiate, please don't wage war in Afghanistan. Uh, today, the, the Taliban representative in Doha says the same thing. So why, you know, you made that mistake and now you wasted like millions of dollars, you know, lives of people. And why you didn't listen to us at that time, you know, if you could listen to us that time, nothing would have happened. So I think uh, the best option would be if uh, that thing was solved by mutual agreement, uh, mutual negotiation, maybe the Taliban would agree, you know, okay, we will hand over Osama bin Laden to you. But uh, Bush administration, you know, uh, you know, never waited for this moment. He 
right away securitize the issue and you know and where did you know uh, yes war in Afghanistan I I I think uh, that might not be the only case there there have there might have been some other incentives uh, uh, that the U.S. you know wage war in Afghanistan uh, and not only Osama bin Laden. Well, I'm, I'm not sure how much of the thinking back in 2001 uh, concluded that there would be a short, easy war, bomb them back to the Stone Age, and, you know, by 2003, 2004, mission accomplished, or uh, and then everybody's back home. And I, and I wonder if now we've come to a point that, you know, the powers that be in the US military realize that before jumping into a war, uh, within a faraway country with a different culture, you might be tempted to, as you say, uh, negotiate first, especially if you have willing, you know, willing participants on the other side. Yeah, exactly. I think it was it was a huge miscalculation of the U.S. As you rightly mentioned, that they would talk, you know, we'll just go tackle the Taliban regime and come back, you know, within a few years. But I think they forgot the Afghan Afghanistan history. It is considered to be, you know, the the graveyard of the yeah, empires, you know. Once you 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 are driven there and the conflicts, it is extremely difficult, you know, to live back from that country. Geography, of course, man, you know, rule and in Afghanistan, the terrain is 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 you know like favored by uh, uh, by for the guerrilla and not for for the the conventional forces. So obviously the gorilla will have offered him, you know, dear. So I think it was a huge miscalculation, and 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 now the United States is realizing, you know, uh, uh, realizing its mistake that, uh, uh, you know, because of uh, one relying on one group, which we call again the Northern Alliance, you know, uh, who made biased decision based on the Taliban, they they didn't realize Afghanistan history, and and the situation is totally different now. And I think. You're absolutely right. One of the most interesting elements of this is, as you say, Afghanistan, going into the Afghanistan war, there was already the reputation of this so-called graveyard of empires. Uh, the United States perhaps paid not, uh, decided not to pay heed to this. And I think uh, another question that comes out, a very interesting question for us as analysts, um, is the study of, of how much uh, one can be led to believe that because you have an upper hand in technology, in the power to to wage war over long distance with the latest in military hardware, uh, with highly efficient and trained troops, you name it. Um, and and, and the, on the other hand, the timeless features of perhaps geography, uh, of a different culture, of being uh, of needing to secure a public support and not being able to get it. So how do you how do you how do you rate this uh, this sort of this miscalculation that uh, decided to favour the power of technology and downplay perhaps uh, all of these other traditional aspects of war? Did that come into? Uh, the equation of the U.S. military, and, and were they uh, shocked to discover that perhaps uh, um, they miscalculated just how important uh, these features are? I think uh, I think they did not realize that by then they were overconfident, you know, with their technology, uh, with their military power, and of course the most powerful, you know, military machine with the NATO and, uh, and and its members. And again, you know, if we see the Vietnam War. Uh, Vietnam was also, you know, militarily and technology inferior when compared to the U.S., but what they had was support on the ground. And of course, you are most powerful when you are 
when you are fighting on the ground that you have you know the full knowledge of mm-hmm. but when you go to a foreign land you know you, you are not familiar with its culture its tradition and specifically in the countries like afghanistan which is a tribal region everything there is being played you know with, with specific you know tribal values and the us has very limited knowledge of that so again it was a miscalculation of the us intelligence you know they they they, they 100% relied on their on their military power and not the non-traditional aspect of security, which always play a critical role in, in, in insurgency in every war. And uh, of course, no matter how you know uh, advanced you are in terms of technology and military weapon, but if you do not have popular support or support from the people, you are very more likely to lose the war. And this has been the case in Vietnam and uh, in, 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 um, in the Middle East and, of course, in Afghanistan. And that concludes the first part of my interview with Irfan Yar on the subject of Afghanistan. On our next episode, you'll be hearing about terrorism and the future of Afghanistan. Thank you so much for listening to MI Cynic's very first podcast show. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much and have a great day.